Well, hello and welcome to the Hammer and Tulip podcast. Uh, welcome to Gareth Dix, um, hey. co-host. Hello, Gareth. Good to, you good to see you there, buddy. Not everybody else can see you, but they can hear you for sure. And uh, we're just really excited, actually, to be starting this new podcast. Uh, we obviously started off, didn't we, back earlier this year, doing a few video sessions on the Doctrines of Grace, which was a phenomenal time. But um, when we finished that, we really got excited, I think, about this opportunity to uh, to be doing a podcast together. So we hope you're blessed by what we're about to discuss. And um, we're certainly looking forward to delving in as well. We've been enjoying uh, studying this subject that we're going to discuss today for the last week or so. Um, so without further ado, um, I'm going to introduce the subject topic for today and indeed for the next couple of episodes we're going to be discussing where is god in coronavirus three christian views so we're going to be discussing this question of where is our god in the midst of this pandemic and we are going to do this by looking at three views that have been put forward publicly from different theological backgrounds and we're going to appraise these views as best as we possibly can with all of our frailties and our uh, uh, and our weaknesses but we're going to try our best to hold these views up to the standard of god's word and uh, and see whether they are consistent and see whether they can bring the christian in the midst of this pandemic some comfort uh, and some some joy so uh, that's what we're going to be doing today um we're going to be starting off this series by looking at an article uh called god's will and the coronavirus so this is going to be our first uh, session this will be the first view that we will look at and appraise this article is written by a guy called thomas j Ord. now thomas j Ord is a theologian a philosopher and he is the director of the Center for Open and Rational Theology. And um, he's put forward this view, which was published on his own website and then reshared by the Lutheran Alliance for Faith, Science and Technology back in May 2020. So this is going to be the first view that we're going to appraise. Um, I, I, th I think our overall heart behind doing this really is not to try and smash, crush and destroy every view. It equally isn't to just accept every view. It's to try and pick our way biblically through these views. Because I think, Gareth, we'd both be agreed that one of the things that's really struck us in the midst of coronavirus has, to be honest, has been the relative silence of much of the church on the subject of coronavirus. Um, I don't know if this has been the case for you, but certainly for me, if I'm tuning into uh, a Sunday broadcast on Facebook Live, I'm very unlikely to see a pastor unpacking the coronavirus. And it has to be said, it's a, it. it's a large elephant, isn't it? It's a big elephant, isn't it? It's a massive <laughs> elephant in the middle of the room and nobody wants to, to reach out and grab it. You know, so um, I... I know and understand the practical reasons why maybe a pastor wouldn't want to do that. You know, it could potentially cause a pastor some difficulties in pastoral areas. It's it's certainly a bit of a powder keg of an issue, coronavirus. But, um, you know, what we're talking about is we're not talking about where did coronavirus come from and what do you think about the vaccine? What we're um, saying is that pastors are not addressing coronavirus theologically. 
they're not no. addressing it theologically or biblically by and not large. So what you will often hear is things like what God might be doing prophetically, you know, for the church right now. And so we're sort of skirting around it. There's nothing wrong with asking that question, but there don't seem to be many pastors that want to hit this head on. And for that reason, I don't know about you, but um, I personally have been drawn to other voices actually outside of the church who are willing to speak about coronavirus in a meaningful and intellectual way. And I think that's the yeah. case for a lot of Christians is they're going outside of the church to hear somebody speak um, openly and, and boldly and rationally um, about this uh, virus. But equally, that can't, that can't scratch the itch because what I'm looking for is a robust theological position on what's happening. Where is God in coronavirus? And I'm just not really hearing it. So I, it's something I feel strongly about. And I think, I hope through doing these podcasts that we will um, maybe begin to kind of plumb the depths a little bit and see, um, see if we find something really that, that can bring comfort to the church. Yeah, I think that's that's the thing, and, and we're trying to really um, not shy away from things, but actually, uh, what are people in the church saying, and and you know, what how do we engage with that, and what what do we think, and what does the Bible say is the most important thing? Mm. What does the Bible tell us about this, and and what is our theological understanding of of all of these things? Absolutely. So, Gareth, to kick off with, I think it's right and fair that we uh, represent. Uh, we represent this first view by just reading the article, um, yep. the most part of it. It's quite a quite a lengthy article, but uh, it's an easy lesson. So I'm I'm going to dive in and just begin to read this, and then we'll pick up the discussion on the other side. So this is um, this is God's will and the coronavirus by Thomas J. Ord. Quote: I'm not surprised some people are blaming God. Maybe crediting God is more accurate. I'm reading social media posts saying coronavirus is God's will. Our current suffering is part of some predetermined divine plan. One post put it this way. Sorry to break up the big panic, but the coronavirus will not take anyone out of this world unless it's the good Lord's plan. And you're not going to change that no matter what you do or what you buy. If this is true, no need to worry. No need to, to prepare, defend, protect, sacrifice or act. It's all in the good Lord's plan. I don't believe the coronavirus is God's plan. God is not causing a pandemic that kills some, makes many miserable, and has widespread adverse effects on society. God did not cause this evil. Those who say God is in control often claim all that happens, good or bad, is part of a master plan. Every torture, murder, rape, disease, war, and more are part of the divine blueprint. Your sister's rape? God's plan. That miscarriage you suffered? God's plan. Every ruthless dictator or fascist system? God's plan. Cancer, meth addiction, leukemia, severe disability and so on? God's plan. The coronavirus? God's plan. I don't buy it. I can't believe a loving God would design that kind of plan. If that's what God's love is like, I want nothing to do with God. Fortunately, a large number of people today reject the idea God is causing the current pandemic. Unfortunately, a large number believe God allows or permits it. Does that make sense? Those who say God allows evil imply God could stop it single-handedly. If God wanted, God could end this pandemic with a solo act of control. For some reason, say these people, God is allowing death, illness and widespread harm. 
Suppose one of my kids began strangling another of my children. Suppose I could step in and stop this act of violence. But suppose I allowed it, and the death of my child saying, I didn't cause this killing, so don't blame me. No one would consider me a loving father if I failed to prevent the evil I could have prevented. Fathers who allow their kids to strangle one another are not loving. Those who say God permits the coronavirus make a major mistake. They undermine our belief in a perfectly loving God. Just as a loving father wouldn't allow his kids to strangle one another, a loving God wouldn't allow a virus to wreak widespread death and destruction. It makes no sense to say it isn't God's will, but God allows it. Many who claim God causes or allows the coronavirus will see some good that comes from our current crisis. They'll point to stories of self-sacrifice or the good that comes from people cooperating to combat this pandemic. Upon seeing the good that comes from the pandemic, some will use a greater good argument. We've learned something valuable from the coronavirus, they might say. This pandemic has taught us we don't need all the stuff we thought we'd needed. It took a virus for us to learn to slow down and focus on what's important. Good things will come from the evils we currently face. Count on it. But we shouldn't say God causes or allows evil for this good. It isn't part of some predetermined plan. Instead, I think we should I think God squeezes some good from the bad God didn't want in the first place. God never gives up on anyone or any situation. Working with a broken and diseased creation, God works to wring whatever good can be wrung from the wrong. God didn't cause or allow. Always be ready to give an account of the hope that's within you, says the Apostle Peter. 1 Peter 3.15 I take this verse to mean we should seek explanations for what God might be doing during this pandemic, I find numerous biblical passages explaining God's action in response to suffering. Most of the explanations I'm encountering today for what God is doing are silly. I don't think God sends coronavirus to punish or teach us a lesson. God has not caused and is not allowing the virus to kill, harm and cause havoc. God is not in the evil business. But it is part of the Christian tradition to offer a plausible explanation to what's happening. It's part, of a being, it's part of being Christian, rather, to seek believable answers to the why questions. It's part of being a Christian to give an account of the hope we have. We should lament the suffering in our world, but we can simultaneously seek answers to why God doesn't prevent suffering in the first place. The explanation I find most helpful to God's relation to the pandemic says God is not in control. In fact, God can't control. God is not to blame because God is neither causing nor permitting the pandemic as if God could stop it single-handedly. The pandemic solidifies our need to rethink God's power in light of God's love. My reasoning rests on the logic of love. I think God loves everyone and everything, and God's love is always uncontrolling. Consequently, God can't control anyone or anything. Not even God can stop coronavirus single-handedly. Instead of appeals to mystery or only lamenting the suffering we endure, Christians can say God suffers with us and cares for us, and God cannot single-handedly prevent the coronavirus as it wreaks havoc. The God I am describing is not watching from a, a distance, eating popcorn. Instead, God actively fights against evil. But God needs cooperation from creatures and creation for love to win. In this time of struggle, God needs the best of medicine, the best from social leaders, and the best from each of us. 
I call this view the uncontrolling love of God, and I've written academic and popular books explaining it in details. The uncontrolling love of God is the most potent force in the universe because love does not force its own way, 1 Corinthians 13.5. Even the strongest lover cannot control others. What is God's will? In one sense, it's the same today as every day. To love God, love others, and in our current crisis, God's specific will changes. God calls each person, each family, each community, and each political structure to unique responses of love. These specific calls are particular to what each creature can do in each situation. God calls us all to act in loving ways in light of what's possible. For most, social distancing can be a significant form of love. Sharing provisions, including toilet paper, can be another. Cooperating with health officials can be a powerful expression of love. Taking reasonable precautions can be an act of love, and so on. We cannot win without God's empowering love, but God needs our cooperation to overcome this evil. We should admit God cannot prevent evil single-handedly, but God is working against the coronavirus, and God calls you, me, and all creation to overcome evil with love. We are always called to love. Our present crisis presents new challenges in discovering what love now requires. I commit to doing my best to discern and then respond to God's calls of love. I hope you join me too. End quote. So, the reason why we felt to start by appraising Thomas J. Ord's view is really because that Gareth and I both feel that large parts of this view have permeated into Christian culture in the UK. Yeah, I don't know about you, right. Gareth. That's how I feel anyway. Definitely. Yeah, um, I think certainly these ideas about um, God not ever causing suffering and, and obviously uh, being from a, a particular type of Christian background, um, charismatic background, um, I've heard some some pretty wild and wonderful stuff um, about God and suffering. I've heard one preacher say that God will never send something that's a challenge or that's painful into your life. Um, I've heard another preacher stand up and said that God cannot do anything without your permission. So yeah. um, these are the types of views that I think are very popular, and particularly in charismatic Pentecostal circles, which is this uh, idea of God being, and, and certainly in um, many of the more mainline denominations indeed, and the Methodist denomination, it's certainly seen that God is all love and that God would never condone or allow or permit uh, suffering in our lives is a very common view. I suppose a question we want to ask tonight is not whether... Uh, this view is appealing, um, but we're asking whether this view is biblical, um, whether yeah. it's biblical. Um, you see, this is ultimately, Gareth, it's the basis of Reformed theology is to return to Scripture. To yeah, back to, to the scripture. Bible. It's a Renaissance view. It's about getting back to the basics. Um, so we as Reformed Christians want to ask the question, is this view that Thomas J. Ord is putting forward, is it biblical? <laughs> yeah, <laughs> is the question. <laughs> it actually consistent with biblical revelation? So I don't know if you want to kick off, Gareth, and I can just join in as you as you want, bro. Absolutely. I mean, I just want to pick up on a couple of his quotes there, um, that God did not cause this evil. That's one of the first things that he says. Um, and he's really, I would say, using a straw man argument here, essentially to say that uh, the sovereign view of God makes God culpable for every bad thing that happens. 
Yeah. Um, and it's the assumption that um, it, for God to be sovereign, then he has to stop every bad thing that happens to humans. Right. Uh, that's essentially the kind of view um, here. And I would kind of say, firstly, I'd want to say, you know, stop a minute. I mean, mm. we, we go back to the Bible and, and we look right at the beginning and we see that God gives Adam and Eve, the first man and woman, free will. Mm. And he says to Adam in, in Genesis chapter 2, verse 17, he tells them that if he eats from, from the fruit of the tree of knowledge, then, then he would surely die. So there's a, there's a choice to be made there. And um, human sinfulness has come into play. Um, and I think what, what he's missing out on here, and the first thing I'd say that he's missing out on is, is the passive wrath of God, which again, right. we see in right. Romans 1.14, where yeah. God gives them up to the lusts of their hearts, to impurity. So there's, God actually allows evil to happen. He allows um, godless people to live in a godless way. Yeah. And that leads on to this, uh, the second thing that I want to pick up that he, that he talks about is when he says, I wouldn't allow one of my kids to strangle the other one. Yeah. And that sounds quite good on one level. You think, well, yeah, you know, that would make sense for a loving it's father. It's kind to of uh, not- reminiscent of the Steve Chalk kind of cosmic child abuse argument, isn't it? Yeah, but this, oh, there's a humongous problem with this analogy. And that is the simple fact that we are not all God's children. Yes. As, as you know, in John's gospel, it says um, in John 1 verses 12, 13, but to those who believed in his name... He gave yeah. the rights to become children of God who were born not of blood, nor the will of flesh, nor the will of man, but of God. Mm. Mm. So what he's saying here is, is, is completely wrong because what he's missing out is the fact that God allows sinners, those who are not his children, we're all his creation. He created us all, but we're not all his children. Yeah. And God allows sinners to flail around in their sin. He allows the wicked to prosper. He allows injustices to happen in this life. Mm-hmm. And, and what I read in this, what he really misses out on, uh, Thomas Ord, is, or what he misses from it is that there will become a final day of judgment yeah. and reckoning. And where God is going to allow some really awful things to happen in this life, but he's going to call everyone to account on that day of judgment yes yeah there isn't that kind of view of eternity is there there's this kind no, of no not at all and i think ultimately mate that is the basis of the social justice movement isn't it we're not talking about that today but no. this idea that it you know all justice needs to be dealt with right now in the here and now politically but it's a view that doesn't tend to take into account that, that great and terrible day of the lord when he will return and he'll put things to rights you know Absolutely right. And I think as well, he misses out on that, that kind of um, awe of God. I mean, there's a quote by Vody Borkham that I, I love and go back to time and again, where he says, do you, do you know that it was his mercy that woke you up this morning because his judgment should have killed you last night? <laughs> and I just think there's a reminder, actually, you know, God, God this is actually God's mercy. Uh, God, um, God may allow uh, this coronavirus to happen, but do we not still have food? And do we still not have yeah. um, many of us a place to lay our head at night? And, you know, it's, it's pretty awful for a num- in a number of ways. But reflecting on my own experience, I think God, I'm still seeing the grace and kindness of God mm. actually more clearly than ever. I think I'm through this coronavirus, I've been more grateful to God for every little good thing than, mm. than I was even before. Mm. Yeah. Um, you know, just to take you back to the first thing you, you said there, Gareth, um, love, love for you to kind of pick this out a little bit more, actually. You said yeah, sure. Building a straw man. 
Um, and this is something I've heard time and time and time again from uh, Christians who don't like the reform view of God's sovereignty is that, oh, so you're saying then that God is sending sickness on people. Yeah. Right. So you're saying because you believe in God's sovereignty that God is sending coronavirus. Now, I'd love for you to kind of elaborate on that view and why that's actually not a fair representation of the reform view of God's sovereignty. Yeah, I mean, very much, um, you've got to remember that since Adam and Eve sinned, we are living in a world that is sinful. The world that we live in now is not the world as God created it. No. And I think people lose sight of that, that God actually created the perfect world. I mean, the perfect, you know, that Hebrew yeah. word shalom, perfect peace. Yeah. The fact that Adam and Eve lived together in perfect harmony, you know, with each other and with God, no arguments, you know, just, just everything was perfect. Mm. And God created this perfect world. It was, everything was perfectly in sync. And it was human rebellion and free will that led to um, evil coming into the world. It was their choice. And ever since evil came into the world, Adam and Eve's uh, free will is, uh, in that moment and choosing the wrong thing has meant that our free will has been tainted. So yeah. there, is a, there is a bent, there's a human bent towards evil. Mm. It's, where, it's what it's, um, where we, know, we call as theologians uh, total depravity. Yeah. It's the idea that every part of us, the body, the mind, the soul is corrupted. So yeah, there's, a, there's a very key moment in Genesis 6 when, um, when God looks out and he laments and he sees that the, that the intentions of the heart were only evil all the time mm. for the people that are on the earth. And I think when we look out in our world, we may people hear people talking about the coronavirus and saying, you know, this is really bad and people are losing their businesses and, oh, isn't it bad? And people are dying. And, and But nobody ever talks about the millions of babies that are being aborted because no. they're inconvenient. 41 million worldwide last yeah, year. Yeah, like no, you are not hearing that on the news, are you? You're not hearing that from pulpits either, to be honest. No, you're not. You're not hearing it at all. We're not hearing about the immorality. We're not hearing about the way that people use each other and discard each other. We don't, you know, I mean, we are hearing interestingly in the news about all the marriages that are breaking up and, yeah. and we're hearing about how, and I think the point I'd make is that it's the, the actual issue, the problem is with us as mm. fallen humanity. Mm. It's not with God. Yeah. yeah. And I think, you know, my view as well in terms of the sovereignty of God is, and, you know, I personally, I believe it's a judgment, but it's a different kind of judgment to what you might call the, 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 the final judgment. Mm. It's an opportunity for us to, a, a bit, our nation to be shaken and for us to come back to God and repent. Right. Yeah. And, and I think it's a different kind of judgment that we're, that we're going through, a shaking, as some people like indeed. to call it, which I think is a good way yeah. of describing it. Yeah, and I think um, this this sense of, you know, well, if you believe that God is sovereign, as the guy says, then you're saying that God is sending sickness, right? Yeah. Um, I think that's a, such a straw, such a bad straw man of the reform position, Gareth, because yeah, it's you are missing out the fact that the world is broken and sinful, right? And so causes, or at least efficient causes of, of sickness, um can be the brokenness and the sinfulness of the world. You know, STIs cause secondary yeah, absolutely. You know, so promiscuity causes STIs. You know, God didn't send that in the sense that he was the efficient cause of it. Was it part of his sovereign decree? Absolutely, because I believe that's biblical. Um, 
but did God actually up in heaven point his finger down and write, you you can have gonorrhea? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> no, um, but it that to say but that it's that's brought what, on ourselves, yeah, isn't it? To say that that's what Reformed Christians believe that somehow God is up there like some kind of you know despotic leader, just you know pointing his finger at people and casting sickness on them is a complete misrepresentation of the real Reformed position on sovereignty. But um, what, mate, what, what else struck me about this article is that there are, I think there are two verses mentioned, two, yeah. maybe three. Uh, it's very thin in terms of uh, scripture. It's not really exegetical in form, um, but the points he's making, such as, you know, God is not in control. Um, God needs our help. You know, he can't deliver from sickness single-handedly. These are big statements to make. Now, uh, what do we say about that biblically? I mean, uh, you know, I know there's a few scriptures I could go to, but he doesn't really seem to make any kind of biblical argumentation to back up his positions, does he? No, not at all. Not really at all. I mean, the odd verse, and, and they're thrown out of context, as we'll see as well. That's it. And so, you know, I think alarm bells should be ringing as soon as we see that. Um, as soon as we see that the, the article is is full of big statements but very little scripture um, certainly this idea that God never causes suffering now that's an interesting one uh, because for me there's lots of verses I could go to where it's very clear God causes suffering right absolutely but, absolutely but for me the biggie the blindingly obvious one is Christ and is the is the cross <laughs> yeah <laughs> because completely right this, this is the thing that people miss when they say well God will never ever cause suffering in your life and, and I'll just think well have you read Acts 2 um, where Peter stands up in the midst of all the people and he says men of Israel listen to these words Jesus the Nazarene a man attested by you sorry attested to you by God with miracles and wonders and signs which God performed through him in your midst just as you yourselves know, this man delivered over by the predetermined plan and foreknowledge of God, you nailed to a cross by the hands of godless men and put him to death. So there you've got God's predetermined plan is to have his son handed over brutally, you know, beaten, yeah. um, scourged, and then ultimately crucified. That was God's predetermined plan. But what we also have here is um, that it's actually the men who are made responsible for this. So we have two wills. Um, we have um, you nailed to the cross by the hands of godless men and you put him to death. It doesn't say God nailed him to the cross by no. hands. It doesn't say God put him to death. It says you did that, but it was part of God's predetermined counsel. So in God's predetermined will, is there suffering? Well, according to the Bible and according to the cross, yes. Now, absolutely. You know, also Gareth, there's, there's uh, you were going to mention uh, was it Genesis 50, weren't you? That's right. Yes, um, I think we both picked up on that, didn't we? Mm. I think it's was, it was the obvious one to go there when he says um, uh, to quote him. He says, "Good things will come from the evils we currently face. Count on it." But we shouldn't say God causes or allows evil for this is good for this good. It isn't part of some predetermined plan. And I think, you know, when we look at the story of Joseph um, in Gen the end of Genesis, and particularly right at the end when, um, when uh, Joseph says to his brothers, as for you, you meant evil against me, but God meant it for good, to bring it about that many people should be kept alive as they are today. Yeah. 
And, and the whole point that God had a rescue plan for Joseph's family and the Israelites that meant Joseph having to have really bad things happen to him. Um, and, and to say that God doesn't cause or allow evil for good and that it isn't part of a predetermined plan is completely unbiblical. And you could just kind of roll that into um, the end of Genesis where um, the Israelites are based in Egypt and God has allowed them to be in Egypt as part of his perfect plan. So what happens next? They end up in captivity and they end up being greatly oppressed and distressed in order that as part of God's plan Moses whose name means drawn out of water yes, even when he was a baby true. he was named by Pharaoh's daughter that the whole plan was there already for him to lead God's people through the Red Sea that's it and so that to say that this isn't part of any predetermined plan is so completely wrong oh, and unbiblical it is absolutely and there's another bit as well where he says um you know, we, here we go. Um, instead, we should think that God squeezes, listen to this, he says that God squeezes some good from the bad God didn't want in the first place. God never gives up on anyone or any situation, working with a broken and diseased creation. So he admits there's brokenness and there's sin and there's disease, but God works to wring whatever good can be wrung from the wrong God didn't cause or allow. But but listen to that verse you've just quoted there, Genesis 50. Um, so often you hear it almost preached as, um, but what you meant for evil, God turned for good. But it doesn't say that. It's, it's, it's no. the very same word, both in the Hebrew and the Greek. You meant it for evil. Now, in meaning something, it means that you actively pursued a particular course of action, right? You, yep. you actively pursued a certain set of events you meant it you know it's not passive it's active and the same with god you meant it for good so god meant this just in the same way that these brothers meant it uh, it wasn't comfortable jacob was thrown in prison you know he was accused of crimes uh, he had to endure a ton of suffering he was thrown into a pit you know his father thought he was dead for many years and this says that god meant that for yeah. good you know for that many might be saved so Certainly, we see this happening in Scripture where God will cause suffering. We see it both directly and indirectly. We see the book of Job, uh, which is the classic example of that, where the devil comes before God and, um, and, and wants to inquire of Job. And the Lord says, you may, uh, you may have your way with him, but you may not, you may not harm him. You may not kill him, uh, effectively, as a paraphrase. But, you know, um, that's one way in which we see suffering coming upon um, God's people, not necessarily by his own hand, but certainly that God allowed that uh, is indisputable. Um, and then we know right the way through the Old Testament, God is consistently always, always, always having this relationship with his people where when they stray from his plan and there's idolatry and there's sin, what happens? God brings judgment on them, doesn't he? Time, yep. and time, again. time and again. And time the and purpose again. of this judgment is not because he's a vindictive, despotic leader who you know, just enjoys the sadistic punishment of his people. He does it. So, he does it. Why? He does it so that they'll repent. He does it so yep. that they'll repent. And I think there's a Puritan. I can't remember who it is that says it's impossible to conceive that God would be able to perfect sinners without some kind of suffering. I can't remember who it is um, who says that. At, um, but I, I, get, I understand that. I get that. You know, we're so broken. We're so wrapped up in our sin 
and so blinded to our own sinfulness that sometimes um, without some kind of stark pain in our lives, we're not brought face to face with our need of God. And no, so not at all. I see this over and over again that, that God uh, uses suffering. I think um, also we've got this this scripture here in in, uh, in Amos 3.6, which says, if a trumpet is blown in a city, will the people not tremble? If a disaster occurs in a city, has the Lord not brought it about? I mean, goodness me. Yeah. And I think on an apologetics level, Gareth, you know, when I'm witnessing to people um, on the streets and I come up to talk with an atheist, somebody who's watched a, a few Christopher Hitchens videos, they know these scriptures. Right? Oh, yeah. They are fully ready to throw them in the Christian's face. And I'm telling you now, any Christian that tries to throw the the cloth or throw the wool over that atheist's eyes well that's in the old testament and you know oh we've now got jesus and have you read the new testament and for god so loved the world you know it isn't going to wash it's not going to no. work it's not a convincing answer i don't think it's a biblical answer and certainly it's not going to help them to get to know the god of the bible who is love who really is love but um you're not going to arrive um, at that place of presenting the, the God of the Bible to them if you just ignore these passages, you know, yeah. or try to find a way to explain them away. Because um, it's very clear, it's abundantly clear that God causes suffering in the scriptures. Um, I'd also, I don't know if you've got any other scriptures, but I was going to point out, um, I was going to point out Isaiah 10 as well. Um, yeah. I don't know if you're familiar with that, but th this is the this is the story again of God punishing His people. Um, and this might sound a bit heavy. You might think, "Oh gosh, you know, th do we have to focus on this? Um, do we have to <laughs> do we have to discuss this about our God? It feels a bit uncomfortable." Um, but we have to understand that uh, the purpose of God bringing about this suffering was number one that His people were rebellious, that they had turned away from God's good holy commands. They had begun to worship idols. They begin to sacrifice their children to the God Moloch, uh, you know, which is a very, very interesting and close parallel to what we see in the world with abortion today. And yep. God hated it. And he swiftly brought about punishment upon them in order that they would turn from their sinful ways. And in Isaiah 10, this is the passage that is describing God sending Assyria against his people. And he says this, woe to Assyria, the rod of my anger. So Assyria is being described here as a weapon, as an implement of punishment in God's hand. Now, does the weapon itself have freedom of choice over what it should do? No, it's being wielded by the person wielding it. And the staff in whose hands is my indignation. I send it against a godless nation, woof, and commission it against the people of my fury, goodness me, to capture spoils and to seize plunder and to trample them down like mud in the streets. Yet it does not so intend, nor does it plan so in its heart, but rather it is its purpose to destroy and to eliminate many nations. So this here, this passage here uh, in verse 7 is talking about the rod. It's talking about the staff of Assyria and he's saying this staff or Assyria in other words doesn't intend so it this staff doesn't know that it's operating in my sovereign decree this staff thinks that 
it's actually going to destroy and to eliminate many nations. It's doing it for its own glory. So here we've got two wills operating at the same time. And then we've got in verse 12, so it will be that when the Lord has completed all his work on Mount Zion and on Jerusalem, he will say, I will punish the fruit of the arrogant heart of the king of Assyria and the arrogant pride of his eyes. Is the axe to boast of itself over the one who chops with it? Is the saw to exalt itself over the one who wields it? That would be like a club wielding those who lift it or like a rod lifting the one who is not wood. So God is now going to punish the king of Assyria for doing what God sent him to do. The reason being was that the king of Assyria was not going to destroy uh, Jerusalem because it was God's will. He was going there to do it because of his own sinful, prideful desires. But God was over it all, accomplishing his sovereign purposes through this great ordeal. And the thing is, Gareth, this is the other thing that I note in this, is that... Um, God's ultimate purpose in that is always the redemption of a people. Right? Yeah. So his, we've got to remember this. When when we look at suffering and we say, right, well, coronavirus is, is suffering, it's evil, therefore. right? We, uh, and God could never allow suffering and evil. We have to take a widescreen angle view on this and say, what is God's overarching purpose in time? And that is to bring glory to his name right? He is glorifying his name. That's the reform position. We look to God. He's glorifying yep. his name. How is he doing that? By redeeming for himself a sinful group of people through the Lord Jesus Christ. His purposes are redemptive. His purpose is to redeem for himself a group of people from this world. That's the overarching purpose of God. And in order to do that, he has ordained certain things that are painful and bring about suffering, even into the lives of people who are his own, into the lives of the elect. You know, there would have been children yeah. in the city of Jerusalem when the Assyrians attacked it. It's a horrible thing to think of. But where would have those children gone, where those infants gone? Straight into the arms of the Lord, you know, which is yeah. an incommensurate good. That there is the greatest possible good one could imagine is to be with the Lord forever. And so we have to have eternity in view. We have to have the ultimate purposes of God, which are redemptive and to bring glory to his name in view. Otherwise, we get this weird kind of in the moment, tiny, tiny view, which says that, well, this is bad. This doesn't feel right. So therefore, it cannot be part of God's view, which seems to be what uh, Thomas Ord is saying here. I don't know about you, whether you have any comments on that, Gareth. Yeah, certainly. I mean, I mean, I, when in terms of God sending a plague, I mean, I've got so many scriptures here, I can't pick all of them. I just just throw a few out there like a machine gun. But obviously, we got earlier on in Exodus, we got the plagues on Pharaoh and Egypt, yeah. the ten plagues. We know all about that. We also see, though, very um, significantly in um, Exodus thirty-two. This is after um, the Israelites had um, got Aaron to build the golden calf, make the golden calf for them and um and got god by way of punishment it says uh in exodus 32 verse 35 then the lord sent a plague on the people because they made the golden calf so god sent a plague on them and many of them died um 
Another one would be in 2 Samuel 24, right at the end of 2 Samuel, um, the story where King David uh, decides to uh, count all his fighting men in, a, in an act of yeah. just faithful, faithlessness towards, uh, towards God. And, um, and, and when Joab gets back from counting all, all the men, uh, there's this really... Uh, kind of this, I mean, I kind of remember right at the beginning of lockdown, I was preaching on this as a word because I just felt that was such a word for now because... Um, God actually shows his mercy to David by letting him pick the, the punishment. <laughs> it's kind of like, well, you're going to get punished, but, um, you know, choose what, which one you'd like, you know. Choose your and poison. Choose your poison, yeah, it really was. And, and so um, David doesn't want to fall into, his, into the hand of his enemies. So it says in 2 Samuel 24, verse 15, So the Lord sent a pestilence on Israel from the morning until the appointed time, and there died, and there died of the people. This is God's people. Mm from Dan to Beersheba, 70,000 men. 70,000 men got struck down, uh, you know, li- literally just, just overnight, uh, as all those people died. Um, and oh, no, does that day and throughout, uh, for the three days, for the three days of the pestilence, sorry. So it's three days that God allowed that to happen. And, and, then, it, and then actually the, it's, we see another act of mercy. The angel stretched out his hand towards Jerusalem to destroy it, and the Lord relented from the calamity. And, and God says to the angel, it is enough, now stay your hand. And this is, this is the thing that, the response in this, and this is the thing which I think is really, really crucial. In verse 17, then David spoke to the Lord when he saw the angel who was striking the people. And he said, behold, I've sinned and I've done wickedly. For, but, but these sheep, what have they done? Please let your hand be against me, against my father's house. And what we see is actually two things. Firstly, we see David repenting and actually coming to God and confessing his sin. But also we see David actually offering his own life and actually wow. a, a, as a foreshadow of Christ yeah. who, who would, who would um, die for his, his people. But this is so powerful, the fact that David... Um, and then he ends up going and, and building an altar and making a sacrifice to God. And, and this is the thing that, that God does send of uh, a plague and it is because of David's sin and David recognizes it and, and he repents and confesses to God. And, and this is the thing that I think hits really hard is in the last year, and this is nearly a year this has happened now, I don't see any repentance. In fact, I don't you know see what? any repentance. So I don't see a- I don't see any repentance mentioned in this article by Thomas Ord. I don't hear. I hear. I hear um, high ups in the church calling us to prayer, but not repentance. No. Oh, we need to pray. Well, actually, no. We, that's not enough. We need to actually come to God and say, "Lord, we have sinned." Mm. Actually, to to confess, lament, and repent to yeah. to, to own our sin and and to tell God that we're sorry for what we've done. We don't recognize our sin at all. This is the problem. David recognizes his sin. And the thing is, we see that the plague stopped. Yeah. Isn't that true? Um, isn't that true? You know, confess, lament, repent. You know, uh, I like that. Snappy. Um, and in fact, you know, you see the things that, that would drive the Lord to bring about punishment on his people and on the nations in the, in the Old Testament. Um and it would so often be sexual immorality, sexual immorality sorry, yeah. idolatry. Uh, and in terms of the idolatry, particularly um, the worship of false gods 
uh, perverse gods and then the practices that they would be drawn into you know, don't take up the practices of the people who are in the land which i'm sending you into you know and and all of these things are present in our nations right now right across the world there is idolatry yeah. there is gross sexual immorality and there is abortion on an absolutely shocking scale yeah and what's the church doing about it staying quiet yeah by and large i'm not saying everybody is there are some real voices out there but certainly in this nation you know you hear many people feeling very bold to speak out about dominic cummings and his car heading up to durham you feel oh yeah oh, that's all over twitter isn't they it all quick to jump to get, on that they one all wanted to get in line there to have their say didn't they all these wonderfully brave christian leaders they wanted to have their say there they wanted to speak up about um, the recent withdrawal which was very sad of um funds and foreign aid which is is great but when are they going to speak out about abortion you know when are they going to speak out about the uh, over 205,000 babies in the womb that were murdered last year in the UK alone you know th there's no voice there um instead what we have is certainly in terms of sexual immorality um is a celebration of that immorality within many denominations um in in the church um and in fact, many, um, many clergy who are yeah. professed and open homosexuals um, or that they have gender dysphoria, they're transgender, um, being put into positions of ministry. Now, we have to then ask if God is immutable, if he is unchanging and these very things were what angered him and caused him to bring about swift judgment on his people in the Old Testament. Why should we be surprised if that weren't happening today? Um, and I, yeah, I mean, yeah, absolutely. I, I, mean, I don't know because I don't think personally, you know, my position would be that the coronavirus absolutely falls within God's sovereign decree. There's no question of that. Um, what his reasons might be for bringing about this this pandemic i don't know um i don't know unequivocally i don't you know but i think it's it's very very short-sighted of this guy thomas ord and many others to outright deny that it could be the judgment of god and say well what a silly view and almost laugh yeah. it off you know when you see it's consistently dangerous. throughout the bible whenever judgment comes it's a call to repentance, isn't it? It's a call it for God's people to turn back. But instead, that judgment is being mocked and laughed at if it is that, you know, which is why I think we have to be so careful um, in picking out our position uh, in this uh, coronavirus situation. So, yeah, just to add to what you've just said about the um, the, the going silent of, of many church leaders. And this is something I think God has really been speaking um, to me particularly is, is in Ezekiel chapter 33. Um, it's where um, Ezekiel is Israel's watchman. And God says to Ezekiel and uh, he says in verse three, and if he sees the sword, this is the watchman. He says, and if he sees the sword coming upon the land and blows the trumpet and warns the people, then if anyone who hears the sound of the trumpet does not take warning and the sword comes and takes him away, his blood shall be upon his head. He heard the sound of the trumpet and did not take warning. His blood shall be upon himself. But if he had taken warning, then he would have saved his life. 
And this is the key bit, and this is why I think the church is failing, because I think the church thinks that um, if, if you're not saying something, if, a, if you're being silent on a particular contentious issue, you're, it's kind of, you're just being neutral. You're not actually kind of, mm. you know, it, mm. it's okay. It's just being sensible and being, and being I suppose, sensitive and loving. Yeah, being, politi- being political and pastoral. Mm. But this is the thing, verse 6 of Ezekiel 33. But if the watchman sees the sword coming and does not blow the trumpet so that the people are not warned and the sword comes and takes anyone of them that person is taken away in his iniquity but his blood i require at the watchman's hand so it's saying ezekiel blood is on your hands if you don't warn him so you son of man i've made a watchman for the house of israel whenever you hear a word from my mouth you shall give them warning from me and if i say to the wicked oh wicked one you shall die and you do not speak to warn the wicked man to turn from his way that wicked person shall die in his iniquity but his blood i'll require at your hands and lastly but if you warn the wicked to turn from his way and he does not turn from his way that person shall die in his iniquity but you have delivered your soul So that's a sobering reminder that if we don't warn, we've got blood on our hands. Well, that's a prophetic picture, isn't it? You know, yeah. Jesus is the ultimate prophet, you know, and we therefore, um, in our union with Christ, uh, we step into the same anointing with which he has. And we are anointed, therefore, as God's people, as a prophetic people, uh, as watchmen and watchwomen on the walls, yeah. uh, particularly watchmen here. And, and we are not doing our job to call the church to repentance there's something very wrong isn't there um yeah. and that we're in grave danger in fact according to that scripture um yeah i think ultimately um this view here that thomas ord has uh, is one that i think is very popular it's one that i see certainly in word of faith churches um which is a view which turns god effectively into a bit of a genie you know, yep. God wants to do X, Y, and Z, but he can't unless you do A, B, or C. Does that make sense? So God's yeah. trying, you know, he's trying, so to save, he's trying to save people, but, you know, unless you do X, Y, and Z, like he's not going to get the job done. You know, he's going to have his hands tied. He, he wants to heal all these people, but unless you are going to pray in faith, you know, like, you know, God's going to basically not get his way. Um, it turns God into our enabler it makes man the center of the the story the narrative uh, of scripture and um, ultimately it makes god powerless it makes us sovereign and supreme and the the passages they'll point to i could tell you now will be well doesn't it say in genesis that god gave us dominion and so they will make that out to mean that god also handed over his sovereignty (laughs) and his uh, reign and rule over all things which we know from the rest of scripture isn't what was being said there um then also i've listened to andrew womack and if you know andrew womack uh caris bible college uh point to psalm 78 i think it is uh which is really obscure and i never heard this one before psalm 78 verse 40 to 41 now him and another one of his teachers chris cree who i'm sure we'll mention again on the show um lovely guy no no need to attack him but the teaching that they were bringing was effectively saying well it's in the bible that we can limit god's power it's in the bible and i'm thinking where and they say psalm 78 40 and 41 
How oft did they provoke him in the wilderness and grieve him in the desert? Yea, they turned back and tempted God and limited the Holy One of Israel. They say, there it is. There it is. And what translation is that? That's the King James. But if you read any other uh, translation there, the word limited is gone. It, it isn't there. And in fact, in the Greek and the Hebrew, it says that they tempted him. They caused him anger, but there's no sense of limiting at all. It's an erroneous no. translation. Yeah. Um, but people will be willing to stand on that. The reason why people will either do what Thomas Ord is doing and make big claims without backing it up at all from Scripture, and the reason why an Andrew Womack or a Chris Cree will say, God's not in control. Look, the Bible says it. And they'll pick out that one really poor translation and not even bother to read the other trans translations is because of presuppositions. It's because yeah. they are bringing a philosophical presupposition to the game. They're bringing their own views and then wanting to read them into scripture, right? So what are these views that we find in Thomas Ord? Well, number one, he's coming with a philosophical worldview, a presupposition that says, number one, God is love. Number one, God is love. Number two, a loving God will never cause suffering, right? Because that wouldn't be loving. Number three, therefore, COVID is not God's will because it causes suffering. So there we see his understanding comes from a presupposition, which is true in a sense that God is love. We know that, 1 John 4, 16. But secondly, that love, his presupposition that love never causes suffering, is manifestly false, manifestly yeah. false, not only from scripture, which we've made very clear, but on a very practical human level, you know? Um, for example, if my daughter falls over and grazes her knee, as he used a human example, I'll use one. If she falls over and grazes her knee, as a dad, I may heal that wound by putting TCP on it or something to that nature. Now, I'm not a doctor. Maybe it's unfashionable to do that these these days, but I'll cleanse that wound. It will yeah. hurt more than it did when she fell down, but will it help? Yes, there is a good aim in it. So that's the first presupposition I, I noticed. Um, the second one I notice is this, is the libertarian free will of man. And, and this stems right back to Pelagius and Augustine and further back as well, which is that they have, they start with this, presupposition that says man has libertarian free will. The reason I put libertarian in there is because I believe that man has a freedom of will in the sense yeah. that man can freely choose to do whatever is in his heart to do. But I believe that behind the human heart is two kinds of slavery, as Martin Lloyd-Jones taught in his exposition of Romans, and is very clear in Romans chapter 5 and 6, and Romans 3, right the way through the book ultimately, is that one is either a slave to sin or a slave to righteousness. And so one's heart is never truly free either to do to, if one is a slave to sin, to choose righteousness, or if one is a slave to righteousness, to become a slave to sin again. Um, so that's what we mean by defining it as libertarian free will. Now, Thomas J. Ord believes that man has that libertarian free will, can choose to do whatever he wants to do, that there is no ultimate slavery to sin or righteousness going on. And then secondly, because of this free will, he's going to reject any notion of God's absolute sovereignty in the coronavirus situation because it therefore takes the control out of man's hands, right? He's going to reject that. He says, therefore, God cannot be sovereign because the sovereignty of God 
in ordaining everything which comes to pass negates my freedom of choice. Therefore, COVID cannot be part of God's sovereign plan because God, he would say, God is sovereign. God sovereignly chose to make us free creatures. And then he kind of, in a very deistic way, stood back and let things kind of, let the cards fall where they may, you know. Um, <laughs> so I, I don't think that's a consistent biblical view. Not at all. Um, I, I see certainly that God uh, ordains very specific things right through scripture. And people may say, well, all of the examples that you and Gareth have picked out about God causing suffering are all in the Old Testament. And I'm thinking, what about Ananias and Sapphira? You know? Yeah. What about That's Ananias great example, and God caused that suffering. That They fell down dead at the feet of the apostles for lying. Now, we, these days, the only reason we've got to believe that God won't do that again is that he hasn't for a while, right? <laughs> yeah. That's the only good reason we've got to believe that God couldn't at any moment do that again. It was um, that he hasn't for a while and that, you know, that story has lasted in Scripture to teach us a lesson. Um Plus, would any of the apostles, would the apostle Paul, that's what we always have to ask, would the apostle Paul or would Jesus himself have affirmed this view from Thomas J. Ord? Would they be saying, yes, you're right. Uh, God is not in control. God cannot deliver the nations from coronavirus. Um, he is waiting on you to do X, Y, and Z in order to accomplish his purposes. The clear answer for me is no chance. No chance. Any no. honest reading of the scriptures is going to tell you that this view is more philosophy than theology. And I could throw another New Testament one from the Gospels, Go. of course, from yeah. John, John chapter 9, where um, when Jesus and the disciples walked past uh, a man blind from birth, and of course the disciples thought it would be really good to have a theological debate around this guy, <laughs> so say, you know, um, kind of philosophical debate. So, yeah, like, so who, who sinned, this man or his parents, um, that he was born blind? And, and what does Jesus say in John 9 verse 3? It was not that this man sinned or his parents, but that the works of God might be displayed in him. Amen. Yes. And people don't people don't like that. Yeah. I mean, the Bethel theology is not is really going to grate with the idea oh, that yeah. this man was born blind in order that we'd be talking about it now. Because on that on that uh, divine appointed day, Jesus walked past and uh, and brought his sight to him. And and just the chapter before, in chapter eight, Jesus had been in the temple arguing and debating with the, with, um, with the Pharisees yeah. about his divine nature. And and this uh, literally just walked straight out, uh, restores this man's sight. And then we have this this whole massive kind of uh, epic dialogue with with the, between this blind man and his parents and the Pharisees, saying, "Well, um, how on earth can can this be?" And and refusing to believe. Actually, the irony of, of their blindness in plain sight of seeing Jesus miraculously healing this, this man's sight, even though the whole general public can recognize it. So there we have it, that there's an, a, an example in the Gospels. That's it's all there good. in plain sight. I hadn't sight. seen that, yeah. I hadn't seen that. I think um, ultimately we, we can agree with Thomas Orr that God is love. We can agree that God is... Yeah absolutely an incredible loving father and for me reformed theology has only made that particular truth more clear and crystallized in my theology that god is love god is an extravagantly loving father and that love the brightness of that love is set against the blackness of my own heart and the sinfulness of my own heart and my um alienation from him which he has brought about 
a change in, you know. So um, we can agree on God's love. Um, the miracle of God's love is that he would save anyone, you know, yeah. at all out of um, our depravity and sin. And, um, you know, he uses sin in order to do that. Now, if you believe what Thomas J. Ord is saying in that God is not causing coronavirus, God will never cause any suffering, God will never cause any pain. Well, what does that mean? It means that your pain, it means that your suffering is purposeless, right? Yeah. It has no part in God's plan for your life. Uh, it, it came as a surprise to him, right? And so, therefore, when he kind of levies all of these like claims against reform theology at the start and says, well, you know, you, your sister's rape, well, that was, you know, that was God, you know, all of that. Well, let's just flip that, shall we? Let's flip that on his view, because all those things in his view are absolutely meaningless. There is no yeah. comfort in that for the believer at all. There's no redemptive purpose. Uh, God didn't know that was going to happen. It just happened. And therefore, in the reform view, at least there is purpose in suffering. At least yeah. we know the Lord is accomplishing some good through it. You know, as Romans 8 says, he's working all things together for good uh, for those who love is, him and are called according whereas to in Thomas, Whereas in Thomas Ord's view, um, you know, God's just as surprised as you are when yeah, God's learning. the bad thing happens. God's, yeah. God's knowledge isn't perfect. And that's the scary thing. Do we worship the same God? Uh, that's what it comes down to. You see, the God of the Bible has knowledge which is perfect. If you read Isaiah 40 through 48, where... Uh, God is mocking the uh, false idols. Um, one of the claims that's made over and over again is, do you know the end from the beginning? What's the implication? That he does. Yeah. That he does. Also, if you take Thomas J. Ord's view uh, to the nth degree, well, where does prophecy come in? If God doesn't yeah. know the end from the beginning, yeah. <laughs> then Great point. prophecy, it doesn't make any sense at all. No, God could not prophesy through the prophets that X, Y, or Z could happen because he couldn't know that the free creatures who he's prophesying about would choose to do those things. Perhaps they could choose to do other, you know, um, for example, prophesying Christ. There are hundreds and hundreds of Messianic prophecies in the Old Testament, hundreds. Um, minimally, you know, we're talking about 88 prophecies, very clear ones about the Messiah. And um, each of them will involve multiple free agents making choices which must comport with God's word, like the birthplace of Christ, you know, like uh, Caesar Augustus deciding to call the census at just that particular time. Could he have chosen to do otherwise? Well, according to Thomas J. Ord, yeah, you know, God couldn't know what year Caesar Augustus would call the um, census, therefore not knowing uh, whether Jesus would be in Bethlehem at that time, which is one of the prophecies in the Old Testament. So the whole of, you know, the prophetic narrative of the Bible just goes under the bus with this view completely. It yeah. makes a mockery of it. So ultimately, we have to ask the question of, of Thomas J. Ord's view. Is it a Christian view? Is it a Christian view? Certainly, there are some things that sound Christian. There are some truths in there that I think you and I would agree with. Um, I think Christians would affirm. But this God who he's talking about certainly to me doesn't seem like the God of the Bible. 
Um, it certainly doesn't match up with what we've looked at, at um, in this in this uh, podcast. We've looked at what the Bible teaches. And another thing he says, just very simply towards the end there, not even God can stop the coronavirus single-handedly. What, sorry? <laughs> what? So I need to help him now, do I? I mean, yeah. wh- what am I supposed to do in all this? And I mean, you just jump into the Bible and it's just straight away Psalm 115 verse 2. Our God is in the heavens. He does all that he pleases. Amen, brother. I mean, come on. Like, like God, God, God is all-powerful and... It's absurd. That's what I'm going to say. It's absurd. It is absurd. And and as we finish, um, worth noting that uh, Thomas J. Ord is an open theist, uh, which means, again, as we've um, elucidated, that he does not believe that God knows the future exhaustively. Um, He believes that it is open, uh, that the future is not uh, into existence yet. Therefore, God cannot know it and restricts himself from knowing it so uh, he's an open theist and um i think we're concerned as pastors that this form of theology this open theism is becoming more widely accepted certainly in arminian circles certainly in charismatic circles in word of faith circles the reasons being will be things like wanting to emphasize the role of man uh in God's in the building of God's kingdom you know if, if we if we make it so that God doesn't know the future it's up to me you know I got yeah. I got to be praying the big prayers I got to be doing x y and z and we believe that too we believe you should be praying <laughs> we believe God yeah. brings about the unction for those prayers according to his providence you know but um there's always behind this type of open theism there's always a bent to magnify the role of man over against God. So he's an open theist. Um, I want to warn you against that particular view. I want, we both want to call you to be careful about what you read, um, question what you read, question what you watch, be discerning. Um, he does talk also of uh, another article, which we're going to cover next time around, doesn't he, Gareth? Um, yeah, that's right. Art- N.T. Wright's article. Yes, yeah. Um, N.T. Wright wrote an article in uh, Time magazine, um, which he does make mention of. And um, really, really interesting piece, which we're going to cover next time around. Um, so that's going to be it for now. Um, Gareth, should we pray and then we finish up? Would you mind, brother? Absolutely. Absolutely. Father, we just want to thank you that you are completely in control of everything Mm. and that our comfort and assurance is knowing that we don't need to worry or fear and that we can come to you in faith. And so, Father, we just thank you that this all these reminders that we've looked at today to remind ourselves of what the Bible teaches, that you have a plan and perfect uh, plan through uh, all of these things. There is a purpose behind everything that is happening Amen. around us and that you will bring that plan to, to into being. You know what you want to do. It is your um, divine providence that we are walking in. And so we just pray for anyone listening to this now who perhaps is full of fear or worry or uncertainty or confusion. And we know that you are not a God of confusion and we pray for that peace to be in our hearts Amen. that we follow as we follow you in Jesus' name. Amen. 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 Okay, thank you, everybody. It's been great to be with you. Please subscribe to the podcast. Share the episode if it blessed you. Uh, We'll be back again in a couple of weeks' time. God bless. Bye-bye. Bye-bye.